Please take your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 53 this evening. Let's turn together in God's Word to Isaiah chapter 53. And tonight we'll focus our attention on verse 12. And by God's grace, we will complete our study of this chapter by no means exhaustive. But the Lord has helped us as we've gone through it verse by verse. And may He help us this evening as we continue to look into His Word at this final verse that is absolutely loaded with content and theology and history and prophecy. May the Lord strengthen our hearts in Him this evening. Isaiah 53 and verse 12, Therefore, God the Father here is speaking, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and... He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. There's a number of ways that you can divide Isaiah 53 with different voices speaking here in this context. And just by quick summary, the way we have looked at it is Isaiah 53 actually begins in chapter 52 in verses 13 through 15, describing for us the sin-bearing servant. And you can consider verses 13 through 15 at the end of chapter 52 as the beginning, technically, of this prophecy in Isaiah 53. This is the shocking servant of Jehovah. The second section is in verses 1 through 3 of Isaiah 53, where we're shown how Christ, or the servant of God, is rejected as God's suffering servant. In other words, God's people, Israel, reject Him because of His very obedience to the Father, because of His very identifying marks. This is not the Messiah they desire. This is not the Messiah that they want. He is rejected. Verses 4 through 6, we see Christ as our substitute to be God's saving servant. In verses 7 through 9, as we've been seeing the last couple times together, we see that The servant of God is totally submissive. He's silent like a lamb going to the slaughter. He is totally submissive, totally silent. And then we direct our attention, verses 10 through 12, at how the Father exalts in His Son, exalts in His servant, and how Christ satisfies the Father with His atoning work. That's what we've been singing about, amen? The power of the cross See the destined day arise as we sing hallelujah, hallelujah to his precious and holy name. So we'll jump right into verse 12. We see that as has happened a number of times in this passage, there's different people speaking. And here we see that God the Father is now speaking. And he announces, first of all, the servant's portion, his portion in verse 12. Now notice there, the text says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Here this is a victorious reigning picture of the servant's work, or the the servant's reception, you could say, in the eyes of the Father. What is heaven's view, you could say, of this atoning work of the servant of God? Now the language here of dividing him a portion is language of victory. It's language in the first century world that no one would have a problem hearing or understanding. It is a picture of a victorious general coming home from the battle. One who has conquered his 
enemies in battle, one who has won the victory on the battlefield. He has collected the spoils of the battle, and now he is dividing them among his followers. That's the language that is being used by God the Father to describe the work of God the Son. In the ancient world, after the battlefield had been completely cleared, the spoils, of course, went to the victor. In Genesis chapter 14, we saw that, or see, that Abraham um, did not want the spoils of victory when he defeated the confederacy of kings who kidnapped Lot and his beloved. Abraham did not want the spoils. He refused to take the spoils, lest others get the credit for his wealth, lest others get the credit for his prosperity in his life. He wanted all the credit to go to God. Exodus chapter 15, verse 9, we see the same language is used where Pharaoh declares what he will do. In Exodus 15, verse 9, Pharaoh says, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will, notice the theme here, the theme of humanism, the theme of sinful man, the theme of Satan himself, I will, I will, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, I will be satisfied on them, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. So we see within the context, not only in the ancient world, but within Scripture, how this language stirs our heart up to understand what exactly is being said here in our text. In fact, my favorite usage is Isaiah chapter 9. I want you to go back, if you don't mind, just briefly to look at within Isaiah's own context. Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, how this word is used, this language is used to describe the spoils, if you will, of the gospel. The spoils of the gospel. I love that phrase. In my study, I was coming across, I'm like, this is, I like this. I want to start using that more in my vocabulary. The spoils of the gospel. Well, we see that described in Isaiah 9, verses 2 through 3. This passage normally gets some attention during this time of year, as we think prophetically. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a great light has shined you have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoiced before you according to the joy of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. We come back to our text here in Isaiah chapter 53, not only looking at the anticipation of the coming Messiah, but here this is continued in Isaiah 53. And the language here is the conquering servant. Now when we think about this servant, we have looked at him predominantly in what his actions are as he is submissive, as he is silent. But here, this is exaltation in the first half of verse 12. He is a sovereign servant in his person and work. I want you to know this evening, I want to remind you as we think about the atoning work of Christ, Christ is not still on the cross, as we have mentioned before in this study. Christ is reigning victorious this evening. He is at the right hand of the throne of the fathers. We'll see more about it in just a moment. But he is the sovereign servant. That's why we've titled last time in this time's study with this title. He is the sovereign servant. He is reigning. He has won a great victory. His death accomplished something specific and actual, not just something possible. He has collected the spools of his enemies. He has given gifts, the gifts of the gospel, to his people. He reigns at the right hand of the throne of God even now, and he has all authority and power that he gives to his church as we obey him by his spirit. Here in this passage, we see that he has all of his enemies chained. Just like we've been looking in Jude 6, where the angels who do not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he's reserved in everlasting chains for the darkness of the judgment of the great day. He makes a public display of all of these things. And Jesus Christ is, 
is publicly glorified, not only upon the cross and not only in His resurrection, but we will see the final day, the day of Christ, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, when we are with Him as His people, as His bride, forever and ever and ever. We will sing His praises around the throne and never tire. A lot of times people wonder about the capacity that we have to do that because we live in a world that is one of temporariness. Everything has a start and everything has an ending. We are limited creatures. We are finite creatures. But friends, let me just remind you, where your mind flips or breaks, like a breaker in the switch, if you will, just remember to have faith and know that you will be glorified. You will be fully enabled to serve Christ forever and ever. You have more capacities in that glorious body than you will ever have here on earth. So do not be discouraged, but look with anticipation towards that great day. Well, here we see the Father exalts in His Son. We see His portion. Therefore, I will divide Him a portion with the great. Secondly, we see His prominence there in verse 12. Notice the emphasis there. Therefore, I will divide Him a portion with, with the great. Now, this is the grounds of great victory. And it is mentioned a number of times throughout this passage of the greatness of Christ, the victory of Christ, the enthronement of Christ, the kingship of Christ. And as He reigns even now, we understand that the reason He reigns, the reason He is victorious is because of His suffering work upon the cross. Because the reason He's glorified is because He is exalted, and the reason He is exalted is because of His suffering work upon the cross of Christ. And there's an important principle here for us that we must never separate the kingdom of God from suffering. John chapter 10, verse 17, therefore Jesus says, because of my sufferings, my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Luke 24, verse 26, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? Maybe the most famous passage, if we think about his prominence, he has a portion divided with the great. Let this mind be in you, Paul says, which was also in Christ Jesus. Our brother Ben brought this text to us last Sunday, I believe. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a slave and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now notice here the connection between suffering and glory. Because of this, verse 8, therefore God also has highly exalted him, or, in Isaiah's language, given him a portion with the great. Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him a name, or the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on the earth, and of those, notice here, under the earth that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, not to be blasphemous here, why does Jesus get all the praise? Why does Jesus get all the glory? Why is His portion divided and given with the great? It's because of His sufferings. And that's what we find in Isaiah 53, verse 12. His obedience to the Father, the glory of Christ, and the sufferings of Christ will forever be connected while we are made whole in heaven, Christ and His atoning work will never be forgotten. This will be the theme without end for all eternity. In fact, as we think about how God the Father, what we see here in this passage, what God the Father, how He exalts His Son, we do not make, as the common phrase goes, make Christ Lord. God has already done that. 
He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. Psalm 110, verse 1, we find the Lord, now notice this language here, this inter-Trinitarian language that the psalmist is using. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This is the Father to the Son, reminding him that he will reward him because of his work and the victory won at Calvary. He shall rule in the midst of his enemies. Chapter 2, Psalm chapter 2, we don't have to turn there, but you'll remember the language from our summer study there where the Lord reminds him that he will be exalted and he will receive an inheritance of the nations from every tongue, tribe, and nation. So verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. What is a part of that portion of those spoils with the souls for whom he has died? His bride that he has purchased with his own blood. Number three, we see not only his portion and his prominence, how the father recognizes his son, his elevation. Even now, this prophecy is given to us that when this servant comes, he will be preeminent because of the work of the father. Thirdly, we see his power there in verse 12. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. I want to come back to this language that was used with portion. And now we see this word spoil again. Again, it's the same point. But I want to emphasize how God's power is displayed because of the work of Christ upon the cross. This dividing of the spool. What exactly is that? And, and there's a lot of study that we could put into that time will not allow us to do. But I want to specifically think about how the power of the servant is displayed in the lives of his bride. So turn with me very quickly to Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. And I want to make a connection between this prophecy, the work of Christ, and our everyday right now. Now, all of this is absolutely pertinent to our everyday living, but I want to drive this point home. We see God's power, the servant's power displayed through God in Christ. Notice how Paul describes it in Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Now, we're in the middle of an argument that Paul is making. Paul says this, he says, Having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed, notice here this language, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. When did he do this exactly? Well, he did this not only upon the cross, but it was consummated in his rising from the grave in his resurrection. Here we see in this passage where Paul is reminding the church, remember, Colossians is a book to a church, a specific church, a particular bride of Christ there. He's encouraging them. He's teaching them sound doctrine. He's reminding them of the public spectacle that Christ suffered on their behalf. And this is a public declaration. And he reminds them that principalities and powers, this is the power of the spools that Christ won, achieved on the cross and in his resurrection. So the powers of principalities and we were to do a word study on that, and time will not allow us to do that, but we would see the power of this present age, the principalities and powers that Ephesians 6 describes as, as those beings and those who are within the army of Satan, the fallen angels, and those who do his bidding, demons, and all of that type of thing. Christ has power over all of them. I would remind you in the gospel records, the maniac of Gadara, the multiple texts that show us as Jesus comes upon the scene, even before the, before the cross, they recognize his deity. Jesus, what have you to do with us, thou Son of God? They gave worship and homage to the Son of God even before most men even understood and recognized 
who he was. But for his people, for us, what is the spoils? Power over sin. Principalities and powers destroyed. Our trespasses being nailed to the cross. John, 1 John chapter 2 describes it in summary. Maybe the best summary of all in all the scriptures is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Behold the power of God in your life that the servant will secure because of his atoning work on the cross and that you have victory over sin. Do you have victory over sin, church? The power of sin is broken. The chains that once enslaved us are now completely broken. Behold the power of God. One, one other passage, Ephesians 4, verse 7. Ephesians 4, verse 7. Maybe one of the most eloquent summaries of the description of God's power, or this servant's power as he's prophesied, the power of Christ. Ephesians 4, verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. There's a lot here in this passage. Now, notice what Paul continues to say. He says, now this, quote, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first ascended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might feel all things. Now notice how Paul goes from this atoning work of Christ, the, work that Christ, the power that Christ secures, into the natural everyday realm of the church. Verse 11. And we're thinking in the terms of spoils, the power of Christ, the portion that will be divided by the Father among him for his people because of his atoning work. Notice how this affects the church. Verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints of the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a complete man, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. If we want to understand this servant's accomplishments, look no further than the bride of Christ. We may not be much, but we're bought by the blood of Christ. Amen? We have a, a husband, if you will, to use the language that is used here. He loves us, he has bought us, and he's coming back for us. And until then, he gives us all that we need for life and godliness through his sufficient word, through the gifts of the church as he equips the church for the work of the ministry. That's the context of Ephesians 4. Much more that's there that we could unpack, but we'll have to be content with simply resting in that, exalting in Christ and giving Him worship. Now, the first half of verse 12 of Isaiah 53 focuses on victory, securing all that Christ secured. But then interestingly enough, the second half of verse 12 shifts in tone. It shifts from victory and glory and returns again to a chord that is not a major chord but a minor chord. The song does not end as we are told songs are supposed to end. Not every song is beautifully harmonious in the way that we think it should be. We'll trust Jehovah's thoughts on this. So he returns again to not a major chord, but the sufferings of Christ. In a sense, for those of us who have eyes to see, all of this is glorious, even in its gruesomeness, even in the sacrifice. We see a return to the sufferings of Christ. So we notice there's a, a change in the tone. And so what we have in the last couple of stanzas of verse 12 succinctly divides itself. It's a short summary, really, of the whole chapter of Isaiah 53. It's a summary of the work of Christ, the Messiah, and the great Savior. Fourthly, we see in there in verse 12 his passing described in 
foretold. Remember, all of this is a foretelling. You will know the Messiah has come when you see all of these things taking place in His servant. Verse 12, because He poured out His soul unto death. Here we're told again that there is the fact of the servant's death, that the Bible clearly tells us that when the Messiah comes, He will die a literal death for His people, a physical death. You say, well, LeGrand, no duh. Well, yes, because He didn't swoon, as some people believe. He didn't faint, as some people hold to. I was reading something the other day that talked about how Ignorant Christians just don't understand that Christ had already developed an early first century technique of meditation and able to self-induce himself into a coma. It's like, where do people come up with this stuff? He did not faint. He did not swoon. The Lord of life died. Again, the Lord of life gave up his life. We see his passing here in verse 12. I want you to turn quickly. Thank you for, I, I can hear you turning in your pages, and I, I, I love to hear the turning of the Bible. Turn with me to John 10, verse 17, because I want you to see with your own eyes how Jesus told us not only that he would do this, but this was a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Remember, Isaiah 53 is one of the most quoted Old Testament texts in, all, in, in the New Testament again and again and again. And we'll see that here in just a moment. His passing foretold. But yet, we need to be reminded of who exactly is in charge here. John 10, verse 17, Jesus says this. He says, therefore, my Father loves me. And why is that? Because I lay down my life that I may take it again. Here is the Lord of life who gives life, who gives spiritual life, who created everything, the world and everything in it. As we saw in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness of it or everything within it. Colossians 1 tells us that in Christ all things consist by the word of his power. But here we see that therefore the Father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. Behold the mystery of God's godhood and yet entering into human frailty, being fully God and fully man. Such power displayed we've never seen and we'll never see again because this is the God-man in Christ Jesus. Now, Jesus wants us to know, he wants his disciples to know, verse 18, no one takes it from me. The cross and the crucifixion is not about wicked men sticking a, a spear in the side of Jesus or nailing his hands into the cross of wood. That's not the goriness of the cross. Oh, it's gory, but that's not the point. None of that's the point. And Jesus makes clear, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. Jesus tells us very clearly, you will know that I am the suffering sovereign servant because I have power over life, and I have power over my life. Luke chapter 4, verse 28, if you don't mind. We see, again, attempts after attempts. Luke chapter 4, verse 28 is the passage, if you remember from this morning, that we read in the cross-reference, where Jesus reminded John the Baptist that he is fulfilling Old Testament prophecies about when the Messiah comes, here's how you will know. And he tells them, this is me, essentially. But the end of that passage, we did not touch on this morning, so it was fresh in my mind. Luke 4, verse 28, so all those, this is the result of Jesus reading in the synagogue, so all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. 
Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Do texts like that not ever just stand out to you? It's like, wait, whoa, 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 John, tell us more. Excuse me, Luke, tell us more. What, what are you talking about? There's a very real, literal intent here for men filled with wrath and indignation against the, what the message of Christ is and what he claims to be is the Son of God, the servant fulfilled. They want to kill him as a result of it, but yet his time has not yet come. But God never, I'm being facetious here, God is a gentleman. He never crosses the will of men, does he? We see here the will of men is very intent. They desire to kill Jesus, and yet there is a restraining force at work here. It's not his time. No one will take Jesus before his time. Jesus is marching to the will of the Father, being led of the Spirit, and he will not die one second before it is purposed by the Father's plan for him to die. He lays down his life. John chapter 18, verse 6 is one other cross-reference we'll look at quickly. John 18, verse 6, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, who are you seeking? And they answered him and said, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now, when he said to them, now notice here, I am he. Again, this is one of those passages, it's like, wait, wait, what? When he said to them, I am he. They drew back and they fell to the ground. Now, what's going on here? It, the, the secret, the answer there is in the first two words of that three-letter sentence, I am he. Why do these men fall back? Simply because I am spoke. In this moment is a rare moment, very much like the transfiguration of Christ, where we see God and Christ on full display. Jesus is God, but we see his power and his glory unveiled as he unveiled himself to Moses on the backside of the desert when Moses asked, who should I tell him sent me? He said simply, I am. I am that I am. Are you the Son of God? Are you Jesus of Nazareth? I am he. They literally fell back to the ground at the voice, at the word of his power. And much more could have happened had God not restrained that. Then he asked them, verse 7, then he asked them again, who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered and said, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. Speaking of his disciples, that the saying, now notice here, that the saying might be fulfilled of those whom you gave me. I have lost none. What we see here is the power of God on full display, marching by the Spirit of God. And now we see his passing, the prophesied death that Jesus, we are told, would experience upon the cross and as we look at the life of christ and we look at the gospel records we see all of these things coming together in one and only one person and that is the lord jesus christ by the way someone sent me a something this past this past week you know we all read so much it's hard to remember the details so don't quote me on this but it's still pertinent enough i'll say it there's a new number i don't know how they come up with this number but there's over a million professing jews that are professing faith in Christ and they're on the record of coming out and they're saying we believe that Jesus is the Messiah by faith and faith alone coming out of their previous religion and professing faith in Christ now I don't know the veracity of that but I thought wow praise the Lord if that's true many Jews when you take them to Isaiah 53 they don't know about Isaiah 53 they stay away from Isaiah 53 they don't own the fact of Jesus they believe Jesus was just a teacher they believe all different types of things uh, about Jesus but Many of them are not taught Isaiah 53. If you truly study Isaiah 53, there's only one person in all the world that it can be speaking of, and that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God.
Number five, very quickly, we notice in verse 12, also what is prophesied is his pollution. He is numbered with the transgressors. This is interesting because a transgressor is someone who has trespassed the law, who has violated the law of God. What we understand is this Jesus, who was the sinless sacrifice, we see here that he is numbered with them. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He was considered and counted as a transgressor, as a sacrifice before his Father. In fact, Mark chapter 15, verse 27 shows us the fulfillment of this. The text says, with him, with Jesus, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right hand and the other on his left, speaking of transgressors. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Now, in his earthly ministry, Jesus was regularly accused of being a transgressor. If you remember, he was accused of being a drunkard. He was accused of blasphemy in his teaching by claiming to be the son of God. He was accused of many things. In fact, as we saw this morning, there's a subtle hint of him being accused of being an imposter, if you will. Not fully, but John the Baptist struggling with doubt. Are you the one or should we look for another? If you remember, the disciples on the road to Emmaus asked the same thing, confused at his death. And as Jesus is talking with them, they don't understand who they're talking to. And they're confused. They're absolutely wondering what is going on. Jesus was accused of many things, but we see that he was actually prophesied to be numbered with the transgressors, and he literally became sin for us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that God himself numbered Jesus with the transgressors, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What an awful verse. What a beautiful verse. What a hope-filled verse, because he became sin for us. We might become the righteousness of God in him. Just real quick, you can't touch on this verse and not remind us of the great exchange, if you will, the great exchange of God taking all that we are, all of our sins, past, present, and future, justifying us, taking them upon himself, and by the way, for all the people for whom Christ died, upon the cross, taking that great exchange and giving us his righteousness when we come to him by faith, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you know Christ? Have you, by faith, come and turned from your sin and essentially placed your sins upon Christ, the great exchange, or has he taken your sins from you? And have you received, by faith, his righteousness, his robes of righteousness, his robes for mine, we sing sometimes? Oh, wonderful exchange. Then we come in verse 12 to his purpose. His purpose. Verse 12 tells us he bore or he bare. Well, rendering is, he bare the sin of many. Again, we've touched on this a couple of times already through the study this evening. Christ came, Matthew 121, to save his people from their sins. Christ came and broke the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free, the song says. These songs are just coming to my mind as I'm saying it. I'm not trying to give a hymn sing quote here tonight. But praise the Lord for our gospel-centered songs. He came. And he breaks the power of sin. He bore the sin of many. And he died specifically for his bride. He purchased her, as, the, as Peter tells the elders there in Acts chapter 20, with his own blood. Then lastly, in verse 12, we see his praying. We're reminded that our Savior was a praying Savior. His life was a life of prayer. His ministry was a ministry of prayer. 
in this sudden note, it ends strangely, but yet it is fitting. He made intercession for the transgressors. And as we look to Luke chapter 23, verse 34, we see that is exactly what he did. It was demonstrated upon the cross in his final moments of this life, this earthly life before the resurrection. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As we look at this text and conclude it, no one ever feels like they've done justice. I certainly don't feel like I've done justice, but that's not the point. I want to exhort us tonight in our study as we think about these things, as the text suddenly ends here in verse 12, look to Christ, run to Christ, believe in Christ, live for Christ. Isaiah 53 is pointing to one person, and that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You can know that His Word is true. You can know that the Word of God is true based on many things. But the argument being made out of Isaiah 53 is that there is one person that all of this converges in, and that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I pray that if you're under the hearing of my voice this evening, that He'll give you the faith to understand and to respond in simple believing faith. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, in Your Word in John 12, 21, the men come to the disciples and they say, Sir, we want to see Jesus. And Father, that's been my goal here tonight, is to simply exalt Jesus. And that's also our desire as well. Each one of us, as we look towards your table and are reminded, Lord, of the instructions that are given, Father, we want to see Christ. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for breaking the power of sin. Father, thank you for one day you will come and save us finally and fully from the presence of sin. Father, our chief disgust with ourselves is when we resort to sin that we know that we do not have to commit, when we fail you as your children. And Father, thank you for the encouragements of your word to come and to confess our sins. 1 John 1, 9 reminds us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Father, as we come before you this evening, we do have no desire to cover our sins, but to confess and to forsake and to exalt in the finished work of Christ, to restore fellowship if for some reason fellowship is broken. And Father, to look into your eyes, to look into your, fa your face by faith, and to rest in the finished work of Christ. Father, would you strengthen the hope of your people? Would you strengthen our faith in the things of the Lord? Lord, may we be encouraged that we are the inheritance of Christ, that you're at work in our hearts and also in our church. We do pray for, Lord, those who are apart, who are sick, or they're not able to be with us tonight. Those in the hospital, we think of Miss Velma's brother and others who our hearts are concerned about or burdened about. Father, we pray that you would use us as your church to be the body of Christ, to advance your kingdom, and to make Jesus great. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.